I don't know if tonight's study is going to mean as much to you as it meant to me this week. It's possible that this means so much to me simply because I've, I've had a week where there's so much going on. A little bit I'll illuminate uh, to you in, in a few minutes, but so much happening and, and feeling like a whirlwind week. And yesterday morning to be able to sit down in my office and turn off the phone and open up the Word, it just was so encouraging to me. And the things that we'll study, there's a lot of discouraging things actually in these few chapters. And I don't want to discourage you right now in any way, shape, or form, but we're going to cover some ground tonight, so buckle up. We're going to cover at least three chapters. That's my goal. And if you see up on the board, you know <laughs> we've got some ground to cover. 30 verses back there. But I'm excited about this because there is a single word that I believe is spoken to us through all that we're going to see, even though we're going to see quite a bit of evil and wickedness among the kings of Israel and Judah. And that single word is righteousness. And I needed to hear it this week. I needed to hear that I'm righteous. I needed to be reminded that as an adopted son, as a child of of God, I'm righteous. Now Solomon says in Proverbs 14.34, and it's kind of the buzz verse I think for our study tonight, Proverbs 14.34, he said, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to a people. Righteousness exalts a nation, Sin is a disgrace to a people. I don't think America was born with complete and total righteousness. However, I do believe that many of our founders, many of the people who came across the Atlantic Ocean to be in this country with the reason of freedom to worship, that God credited them as being righteous. And so we saw a nation exalted 200 years ago. But sin is a disgrace to a people. And as things go forward and the dollar devaluates and we find ourselves in in financial crisis and crisis in the world in general, I kind of wonder if this verse might not be playing out before us. But let's step back from our nation and get personal Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to a people. Righteousness exalts a person. Sin is a disgrace. The word righteousness in Proverbs 14.34 is from the Hebrew root word sidka. Sidka. Now you may have heard that before. It's actually a name applied to God. Yahweh Sidkanu. The Lord our righteousness. So sidka is where the word righteousness comes from, and it simply means doing right. Doing right. Righteousness is, in essence, walking in the ways of God. Just doing the right thing. It's seeking to live in a right relationship with God. So it actually takes us a step away from just doing right things in in terms of behavior and leads us into this concept of right relationship with God. David's behavior wasn't always perfect, as you know, but he was righteous because of his relationship with the Lord. Righteousness doesn't always mean perfection or flawless religious behavior. It means being right with God. In the same way that I'm right with my wife, 
I mean, there are times when Cheryl and I are just right on. There are times where I'm not so right with my wife. Maybe I haven't had enough sleep, or things aren't going well, or I'm a little stressed by other things, and so I, I'm not right with Cheryl, and, and I want to get back in a right relationship with her, where we're in agreement, and when there's peace and harmony in our marriage, right with my children. That is a very basic concept. When Hannah and Corey and, and Hayden and I are enjoying each other and, and getting along and things are sweet, that, that's, that's right when, when I'm having to get on to them, or when they're having to correct me. Specifically my driving, which happens a lot now that two of my kids are working on their licenses. I want to be right with them. I want to be right with my friends. I don't like discord. I don't think anybody does. I don't like division. I want to be right in relationship with my friends. That's what God is calling us to in righteousness. I want you and me to be right. A relationship that is good and healthy. Before Jesus came, David... David is the standard of righteousness. I mean, this hit me just reading over and over as we see the kings of Judah and Israel get worse and worse and their wickedness prevail. We keep hearing the Lord say, if you will just act like my servant David. If you will just be like your father David was. David is the standard of righteousness, which is amazing. He is the bar which the Lord held up for all the kings of Israel. And what's nice about that is it wasn't an impossible bar. It wasn't an unattainable or unachievable thing. In fact, often when David's name is mentioned, statements are made like you'll hear tonight, David was righteous before the Lord. You know, with the exception of that Uriah incident. I mean, that's still there. But the bar is raised, and David is the standard of the kings as they are called to walk in a right relationship with him. God doesn't say be perfect even. He says, be like David. If you will at least be like David, I will call you and consider you righteous. But, as you know, after Solomon's death, when the country divided into the separate and often warring nations of Judah and Israel, the kings of Judah went 7 for 20. And the kings of Israel were 0 for 19. This is not a good record. 19 of the kings of Israel, all 19, were evil, wicked. Not a single one followed the Lord. They instead followed the path laid out by Jeroboam rather than David. 13 of the kings of Judah followed the path of Rehoboam, which was sadly kind of learned from his father Solomon. They ended up wicked and self-serving. Whereas we know seven... Seven were considered to be righteous. We'll see just one of those tonight. In chapter 14, it should be no surprise then that the hammer of judgment falls on the wrongness of both Jeroboam in northern Israel and Rehoboam in southern Judah. Both of them get nailed. In chapter 15, we're going to cover four more kings. The next two in Judah, Abijam, who is evil, and Asa, who thankfully is good. The next two in Israel, we'll see in chapter 15 as well. Nadab and Basha. Nadab and Basha are both evil. In chapter 16, the downward spiral of Israel's kings, that is northern Israel, the kingdom of Israel, their kings continue to spiral down with Elah, Zimri, Omri, each king being more wicked than the king before him. And finally the whole thing culminates in the wickedness of a king you probably have heard of, Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel, one of the most nefarious couples in the history of the world. And we'll just barely get to Ahab tonight. 
Now with that joyful introduction, let's begin. 1 Kings chapter 14 and verse 1. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise now, and disguise yourself, so that they will not know that you are the wife of Jeroboam. And go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah, the prophet, is there, who spoke concerning me that I would be king over this people. Take ten loaves with you, some cakes and a jar of honey, which if, if I was the prophet, Ahijah, I'd be very excited about it. I like honey. We put honey on everything. Have I shared this? I think I have. Our family is just sick with honey. We just, we're a big honey family. We're kind of honeyhead family. Anyway, take a jar of honey. Sorry, I digress. Take a jar of honey and go to him, and he will tell you what will happen to the boy. So Jeroboam's wife did so, and arise and went to Shiloh, and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. Now the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. And you shall say thus and thus to her, for it will be when she arrives that she will pretend to be another woman. God tips Ahijah off. When Ahijah heard the sound of her feet coming in the doorway, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another woman? For I am sent to you with a harsh message. Go. Say to Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. Yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart. To do only that which was right in my sight, you also have done more evil than all who were before you. And have gone and made for yourself other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I am bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam. And I will cut off from Jeroboam every male person, both bond and free in Israel. I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. Anyone who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat, for the Lord has spoken it. Now, you arise, go to your house, and when your feet enter the city, the child will die. This is heavy stuff. I mean, this this wife of Jeroboam goes with honey and cakes, hoping to garner some favor from the prophet, possibly some healing virtue, And comes back with a promise that when her feet enter the city, her son will be dead and Jeroboam's house will be in severe danger. He says in verse 13, All Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he alone of Jeroboam's family will come to the grave. That's intense. In other words, every other person in Jeroboam's family who is going to be murdered, who is going to die and be wiped out, won't even be buried. They're just going to be slaughtered. The dogs will eat him in the town and the birds will eat him out in the field. Only this child who dies as a result of punishment, only this child is going to be actually buried in a grave. Why? Because, verse 13 continues, in him something good was found toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the house of Jeroboam this day and from now on. For the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and he will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the Euphrates River because they have made their Asherim provoking the Lord to anger. 
By the way, Asherim, we, we talked about on Sunday that Asherah is Astarte, is Juno, is several other gods. Diana is another god that comes right from this history. Diana is just another nation's name for Asherah. So going on, and if your name happens to be Diana, I apologize, but that's just you know the truth of the matter. Um, Going on, it says that uh, the Asherim, you provoke the Lord to anger, verse 16, he will give up Israel on account of the sins of Jeroboam, which he committed and with which he made Israel to sin. Now, it's not that he's blaming Israel for Jeroboam's sin. It's that Israel is walking in Jeroboam's sin. Jeroboam introduced it, but Israel received it wholeheartedly and ran with it. Verse 17, then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Terza. And as she was entering the threshold of the house, the child died. All Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of the Lord which he spoke through his servant Ahijah the prophet. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And we'll see those when we get to the book of the chronicles. Verse 20, the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years and he slept with his fathers and Nadab his son reigned in his place. There's several little nuances in this story. I want to just pick out a few of them. The first one that I think is interesting that jumped out at me was the sight of Ahijah. The sight of Ahijah. At this point in his life, the Bible tells us his eyes literally were set. That's the, the Hebrew word for blindness is the eyes are set. In other words, they're not moving anymore. They're not working. They're, they're dead in the water. So he can't see a thing, but Ahijah's ears are clear as a bell. And it's almost comical in this moment when she comes walking in thinking she's going to deceive him, thinking her disguise is perfect and she probably worked on a voice on the way there. How can you disguise my voice so he can't hear me? And she sets foot in the house and before she even says a word, he says, Oh, Jeroboam's wife. And he's blind. He's probably got the white cane with the little red thing at the end. And he's like, oh, Jeroboam's wife, come on in. Sit down right over here. And she's got to be thinking, this is, this is amazing. How does he know this? He knows because though he is physically blind, spiritually he is hearing. He is tuned in to the Lord. And gang, that's how to live in righteousness. That's how to be right with the Lord. To be right with Him such that you're, you're hearing Him. You're hearing his indications. You're hearing his voice. You know what he wants you to do in a given situation. Jesus said in John 10 verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. He's indicating the devil there. Verse 2, But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him, because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him, because they do not know the voice of strangers. And Jesus says very clearly, my sheep will hear my voice. They're going to know me. When I speak, they're going to know which way to go. Because I'm out in front of them. He's not driving the sheep from behind. He is in front of the sheep, leading them. Going wherever he goes, he's not asking us to go anywhere he hasn't already been. Which is great news. Anytime you feel a leading of the Lord to go a certain direction, you can know he's already gone. So he knows the path. He knows the way. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5-7, We walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is hearing, not seeing. Now I told you this is, 
this has been a, a kind of a wild and, and crazy week for me. And, and I, I want to preface this by saying it's been the most international year of my life so far. And I didn't start off this year early on planning. Last January I had no idea how much travel I would do internationally. I didn't think I would ever do so much travel. I went to the Philippines, to Israel, to Canada. And even as far as Cleveland, I mean I've been all over the world. Well you can add Ghana to the list. This Saturday, and I, I cover your prayers for this, Cheryl leaves to go, and Kathy Pittis is going as well, to Ghana. Russ and Kathy are looking, and we've shared this before, they're looking at adopting a little boy named Moses from Ghana. Cheryl's going because we're looking at adopting a little boy named Apollos. And pray for this, because we don't know what's going to happen or how this is going to work, but we figure everybody else around here is adopting, so why not us too? <laughs> Yesterday, Cheryl and I are talking about this. And we're trying to figure out, should she go, should she not go? We knew Kathy was already going, and, and there's some reasons why it's, it's really important that she goes ahead and goes. She's not going to go and bring back Apollo. She's just going to go and meet him and, and spend a week at the orphanage there and try and get some paperwork taken care of and, you know, kind of trailblazing a little bit. But this was the question, and I thought it was ironic, because I already knew what I was studying and looking at here. In fact, I was in the middle of this whole thing about just not having any sight, but he's hearing the Lord very clearly. And Cheryl asked me, she goes, how do we know it's the Lord? And I said, I have no idea. And then I kind of laughed to myself. i got to get up tomorrow night and tell everybody else how to hear the Lord. And I'm not even sure. How do you hear the Lord? And, you know, we, we've talked about this. This morning it was beautiful. I'm driving the kids to school. And uh, I was a little stressed. I was a little tensed up. And uh, Hannah's sitting there beside me in the front seat. We're driving along, and and I go, man, I, I just go, guys, just you just got to cut me some slack here. I'm, I'm feeling a little stressed out today. I got a lot going on. Mom's going to Ghana, you know, on Saturday. We're trying to figure all this out. And Hannah said, God's in control, Dad. <laughs> and I said, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know whether to chastise her for getting on my case or say, you're right. So I texted her later, thanks a lot, I needed that. And she was dead on. God is in control. He knows what he's doing. But how do we know it's him? Bible students, what is the best instrument for tuning our ears to the Lord? What is the best instrument we have for learning how to hear the Spirit speak to us in our lives? We have the Word. So we start there. In my case, with this whole situation with Apollos, I start with the word. What does the Lord say about orphans? What kind of a responsibility is he calling Cheryl and I to about orphans? You start looking at verses on orphans and wow. <laughs> don't do it if you don't want to adopt. Just telling you. You start with the word. And you learn to listen through the word. And the more you're in the Word, the more you see. We've talked about this so many times. I just I'm, This is by way of reminder, gang. And I'm reminding myself. The more I'm in the Word, the more I'm used to the language of the Father. And so when He begins to speak to me, I know His voice. Oh, I've heard that phrase before, Lord. Because you already said that. Oh, that makes sense. Because that jives with where we've been at in the Word. And so you start with the Word, and then the second thing you do is you pray. I'm not sure if the Lord's leading me here. Ask Him. Father, is this you? And by the way, I for one have no problem with asking for confirmation for direction. Lord, could you give confirmation? If this is the way you want us to go, if this is of you and not of us, 
Would you open doors? But if it's of us and not of you, slam them shut in our face. Don't let us go down this path. You pray. And then you wait. Which is the hardest part of all of it. Now I can be in the Word pretty quick. I can pray instantaneously, but, but waiting. Now I'm the guy who's saying, in Jesus' name, Amen. Father, I still need that confirmation. <laughs> How long is this going to take? You know, i got stuff to do. <laughs> it's a verse you all know so well. But listen to it again. Isaiah 40, verse 31. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not get tired. They'll walk and not become weary. What happens when you mount up with wings like eagles? Your perspective changes. When I wait on the Lord and begin to mount up with eagle's wings, now I'm not seeing things here. I'm seeing things up here. I've got a bird's eye view of a much bigger picture than I had when it was just me. So I'm mounting up with wings like eagles. I'm seeing what God is seeing. This is why Ahijah hears so clearly and so instantaneously. He's listening with faith. Though he's blind, he still sees what's coming. So get in the Word. Pray and wait. So simple. Something else to notice here in Jeroboam's story, and it's a serious sovereignty. A serious sovereignty. Now, I like this point because God actually flipped it around to me. I was going to talk about God's sovereignty. He said, no, I want you to talk about Jeroboam's sovereignty. Somehow, Jeroboam didn't understand that he had been given sovereign rule over the entire ten northern tribes of Israel by the Lord. This was no doing of his own. This was a gift from God. Remember what happened back in 1 Kings 11. That Ahijah, the same Ahijah the prophet, comes to Jeroboam and he takes a new cloak and he tears it into 12 pieces. And he takes 10 of those pieces and he hands them to Jeroboam and he says, Dude, God wants to give you the 10 northern tribes of Israel to rule. And the Lord wants you to know that if you will walk in his ways, just like David did the standard for both Judah and Israel... If you'll walk like David did, he's going to bless you, and you will never lack a son in your line on the throne of Israel. Do you realize tonight that we could be extolling the virtues of Jeroboam rather than just David? That we could be saying, David and Jeroboam were the standard of righteousness. Because the Lord actually offered that kind of sovereignty to Jeroboam. You can have this and I'm giving it to you and you need to walk with me. I'll give you an enduring throne if you'll walk in my ways. If you will just be right with me. And I was thinking, what, what, what is your area of sovereignty? What's my area of sovereignty? You know God has given each one of us sovereignty over some area. He's given us rule and authority over something in our lives. I mean, for some people, it might not be much more than a turtle. (laughs) Or maybe a family. Or maybe a responsibility in the workplace. Or a church. But God has given each of us authority in some area of our life. What has God made you ruler over? Psalm 8, verse 4. David said, What is man that you take thought of him? And Yeah, I hear you. Thinks he has sovereignty over me right now, I think is what's going on. What is man that you take thought of him, the son of man that you care for him? And then listen to this. David said, Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. He's not talking here about Jesus, although this applies to Jesus later. 
He's talking about you and me. He's talking about mankind. And he says, you've made him a little lower than God. He says in verse 6 of Psalm 8, you made him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. What are you sovereign over? What has God given you rule or authority over? What or who in your life do you have a position of authority with? Authority that is healthy, that you can speak good things into other people's lives. God's given each one of us an area of sovereignty. What are you doing with it? How are you handling it? Jeroboam went after what Matthew Henry called dunghill deities. I like that. Idols are dunghill deities. The high places where the idols were set up were just dunghills as far as the Lord is concerned. In fact, he says in verse 10, I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it is all gone. Now, in our back porch area, we have a dog run for Reggie. And in that back porch area, off to the left, at least for a while there, we moved it because I think there was probably a a health hazard, but we had a a big trash can that was the poop bucket. And whoever was picking up after Reggie, it's Hannah's job now, but whoever was out there doing it would scoop it all up and you'd take it over to that bucket and I'll tell you there was nothing worse than opening the lid of that thing. (laughs) I mean, it's rancid. It was just awful. And that immediately came to mind when I read, I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it is all gone. Why the reference to dung in the scriptures? Because gang, listen, idolatry stinks to high heaven. God hates it. Because rather than rightness with the Father, it creates wrongness. It divides a relationship with God. It replaces righteousness with stinking, rotten deception. That's what idolatry does. And so as verses 10 and 11 foretells, we will see in chapter 15, within two years, Jeroboam's entire family is going to be wiped out a clean sweep. They will all die violently, with the exception of this one child who dies in this chapter. And by the way, you can be sure that the stinking rot of idolatry that virus of idolatry spread out to all the sons of Jeroboam. Because God says in other places in the Bible, He's not going to punish the son for the sins of the father. He's going to visit. He's going to visit the sons for the third and fourth generation. And check in and see, are you following in the pattern of your father who sinned, or are you now following in a different direction? But He's not going to punish the sons or the daughters for the father's or the mother's sin. So we can make the easy assumption that the whole family is infected with idolatry, save one little lad. There's a third thing to note here, salvation. A salvation from evil. We have the the sight of Ahijah, we have a serious sovereignty, now we have a salvation from evil. And if you wonder about Jeroboam's child who died, reread verse 13. All Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he alone of Jeroboam's family will come to the grave, because in him something good was found toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. The word for child here is the Hebrew word. Same word that's used today, by the way. It's yelled. Yelled. And yelled means little boy. It's a different word for little girl, but yelled is little boy. And I like this verse. Now, I can't prove it, but I think this little guy already had a right relationship with the Lord. 
I think this little guy of all of Jeroboam's family had a sense about him that idolatry was wrong and he already was following after the Lord in his own way. Well, if that's the case, Rick, why would God take him? Why would he kill him? That's, that's harsh punishment. That's not fair. That's our perspective on this side of heaven. Why would the Lord take this little guy out, especially if something good is in him? Especially if there's a righteousness already to be found in this son of Jeroboam. Why kill him? Isaiah says in Isaiah 57 verse 1, and it's an important verse, and one that I think helps us to re-evaluate our perspective of death and dying. Isaiah 57.1, he says, The righteous man perishes, and no one takes it to heart or, or gets it. He says, devout men are taken away while no one understands. Well, I could apply this to Jeroboam's son. He's right with God, at least to a degree. There's a rightness there. Why would God take it away? I don't understand. And Isaiah says, for the righteous man is taken away from evil. The death of his son, while being a punishment to Jeroboam and his wife, was a salvation for that little boy. Not only an eternal salvation, which I absolutely believe, the children who die in the Lord go straight to be with the Lord, but an immediate salvation, this little guy will never have to go through the evil of life on this planet. And I think that's great. That's a blessing. For us, the loss of a child or a really righteous person, it's it's tragic. Stephen Curtis Chapman's little girl. And I'm sure you all heard on the internet that was going around what happened to her that, that if you haven't heard five year old adopted daughter that his 18 year old son accidentally ran over her with an SUV in the driveway why Lord why would you allow this little girl why would she be taken you know what that little girl will never have to deal with sin she'll never have to deal with teenage boys whistling at her <laughs> she'll never have to deal with the, the, the madness of our media Movies that she shouldn't see and music she shouldn't listen to and people she shouldn't be around. She will never have to deal with temptation ever. She is home. Now it is tragic and I don't mean to, to you know, whitewash it or make it simple. It's tragic and a difficult thing for that family or any family who loses a child. But you know what? That little girl is home. And she will never have to deal with the sin and evil that we have to deal with in this world today. Well, that's it for Jeroboam, and I'm sure you can find more if you want to spend some time in that chapter, but let's move on. Verse 21, we go now south to Judah and see how Rehoboam is doing. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Naamah the Ammonitess. Now, pause for a moment. We're going to see with many of these kings that the mother's name is mentioned as a genealogical reference. And that is unusual. Most often in Hebrew genealogy and in the genealogies of the nations of that day, the women were not mentioned. It was only the sons. But suddenly here, in First and Second Kings, kings are mentioned, evil, wicked kings, and their mother is called out. And their mother is pointed out. Why is that? I think the Lord here is magnifying the significance of the mother's role in the son's wickedness. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 15 has a, a, a difficult verse 
I'm going to read it to you as is. I'm going to let you squirm for a minute and then we'll try and explain it. 1 Timothy 2.15 says, Women will be saved through the bearing of children. That's what it says. Women will be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity and self-restraint. Now that's an interesting verse. So you're saying barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen is the only way to heaven for a woman? No. The word saved there is the Greek word sozo. And it is the word, by the way, that is used for saved. It is the word that we use when we see saved or salvation in the New Testament. Sozo is the word. But as with many Greek words and many Hebrew words, it's a very colorful language. It means more than one thing. And sozo also means wholeness or fulfillment. Read it that way. Women will be fulfilled through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Women will be content, will find wholeness in the raising of their kids. And that's the context in which Paul is writing to Timothy. Moms, first and foremost, find their fulfillment in raising up righteous kids. It's the best place for a woman to find fulfillment. I realize that sounds rather 1910 <laughs> You know, I know we're going back a few years in our country. You know, I realize that, that women have found a, a new liberation. But Scripture says, Paul says, and he's been called a, you know, an anti-feminite. I don't know what, what he, he's been called anti-women. A, you know, a bigot. But Paul says, no, ladies, you find your fulfillment. There, first and foremost, doesn't mean that if you don't have children that you won't be fulfilled. But it means, women, if you have kids, if you're mothering children, that's where your focus needs to be first and foremost. Because in raising righteous kids, you're going to find a joy there you're not going to find anywhere else. And Paul saw this in Timothy's upbringing. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, he says, I am mindful, Timothy, of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm sure it is in you as well. That's interesting. Now, people have, have guessed that, well, maybe Timothy didn't have a dad. Maybe Timothy did have a dad, but the faith was passed down from Grandma Lois to Mother Eunice into the heart of Timothy. And Paul illuminates that now on the other hand, in Rehoboam's case, his mother was anything but godly. And his mother was married to his father. Remember, dad was Solomon. And Solomon loved very many strange women, according to the King James Version. Literally many foreign women. And she was no exception. She was a pagan Ammonitess, one of Solomon's many. And she was mom to Rehoboam, and I'm sure she didn't help his cause at all. Going on, verse 22. Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. Remember, Rehoboam is now over Judah. I'm going to, by the way, try and keep you on track because it goes back and forth between the kings so often that it's easy to lose track. We were in Israel with Jeroboam. Now we're in Judah with Rehoboam. And so Judah, verse 22, did evil in the sight of the Lord. They provoked him to jealousy more than all that their fathers had done with the sins which they committed. For they also built for themselves high places and sacred pillars and asherim on every high hill and beneath every luxuriant tree. There were also male cult prostitutes in the land. The word there literally is sodomy. Sodomites. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. 
Now it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and he took everything, even taking all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made shields of bronze in their place and committed them to the care of the commanders of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. Then it happened as often as the king entered the house of the Lord that the guards would carry them and would bring them back into the guards' room. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? There was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. Rehoboam, by the way, you might remember the Lord said, Don't go to war with Israel. Don't you dare go fight there. But they did. Now some commentators believe that it was border wars. It wasn't wasn't like going to battle, full on battle, but it was constant fighting across the borders back and forth. They'd kind of come in a little bit and they'd fight back and, and this is what was going on. There was war between these two houses and verse 31 says Rehoboam slept with his fathers and buried, was buried with his fathers in the city of David and his mother's name was Naamah the Ammonitess and Abijam his son became king in his place. One note on Rehoboam before we leave him. Why did Rehoboam replace the golden shields taken away by Shishak with bronze shields? Two reasons. Number one because he couldn't afford gold. And number two because he had to keep up appearances. What would happen is every time Rehoboam came out of his house and went up to the temple of the Lord, the guards would take out those bronze shields, no doubt, shined up and cleaned of all tarnish, and they would march beside him so the shields were still visible for everyone to see when he went up to the house of the Lord. And then when he came back, they'd take the shields back and they'd put them away until the next time he marched out into the city. And it was all about appearances. The bronze shields of Rehoboam were a front to a failing kingdom. First, Rehoboam loses the kingdom. It splits. Ten tribes run away. But hey, at least he's still got the gold, right? He's got the gold in the temple, and he's got the gold in his father's house, which is now his house. So at least he's got the gold and riches. Then Shishak comes in, king of Egypt, and takes all the gold away. So he loses that as well. Now, Rehoboam is just playing king with cheap bronze shields, trying to keep up appearances. Now, I want you to hear this. I believe the Lord wants us to bask in the riches of our inheritance. I believe right now in the life in which we live, God wants us to be reminded that we are children of the king and our inheritance is gold. It's beautiful. It's beyond anything else you could find in this life. And I think God wants us to be aware of that and live there. Ephesians 1.18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Paul says, I pray that for you to know that. So that day in and day out, whatever's happening, you can say, yeah, but man, I am surrounded with riches. The riches of my Father's house. So that when you're doing the bills, you can go... Oh yeah, Dad owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He'll take care of this. I'm a child. I'm a saint. Problem is in the church when we hide behind religious appearances. Not faith that we truly have the inheritance, but, but appearances. We want other people to think that we have faith, that we have the inheritance. And so we, we start to put on this bronze shield... We refashion our Christianity to appear righteous while walking outside of a right relationship with God. 
When no one's looking, the righteousness ain't there. But man, when everybody's looking, I got the Bible, I got my seat in the front row. No kidding, you guys, it's, it's fine. And everybody can see my bronze, shiny shields. And when we walk outside of a relationship of integrity with God, that is being the way you are with God when no one is looking and when people are looking. A right relationship. When I walk outside of that, gang, I'm just basking in cheap bronze. It's pretense. Don't choose cheap bronze. Go for the gold. Reminds me of that uh, very fast but not too bright Olympic runner who went to the Olympic Games and ran and won the gold and he was so excited that he went right out and he had his metal bronze. You know, to keep it. And yet, and yet, why would we choose a cheap bronze faith when we have the gold inheritance of sons and daughters of the king as he calls us to a right relationship? Chapter 15 going on. Verse 1. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, that is of Israel, the son of Nebat, Abijah became king over Judah. So we're, we're still in Judah here. We're now to the, the second king of, of the nation of Judah that is following Rehoboam, now Abijam. And verse 2 tells us that he reigned three years in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom or Absalom. He walked in all the sins of his father which he had committed before him. His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God like the heart of his father David. Now when they say his father David that means grandpa or great grandfather. It means his forebearer, his forefather. So he didn't walk like his father David had walked. Verse 4, But for David's sake the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Seems like, like such a little thing. And yet in the big picture God is saying yeah he fell, it was awful, he lied, he deceived, he committed adultery, he committed murder and these are bad things. But you know what? His heart was right with me. And the moment he realized that he had fallen in this atrocious sin his heart broke because he loves me so much. And verse 6 says there was war between Rehoboam, literally the house of Rehoboam, and, and the house of Jeroboam all the days of his life. That's all the days of Abijam's life. So they're still warring back and forth between north and south. Now the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. Now according to Second Chronicles 13, which we'll get to someday Abijam did some good things he was zealous for the Lord in action he went out and he fought for the Lord and there's a great in that chapter 2 Chronicles 13 there's a great prayer that Abijam offers for his army before they go to war and he really calls them to follow the Lord and this guy is a zealous, a zealous guy but his heart was never right with the Lord so how is that possible? well it's very possible the Apostle Paul is a good example of a man when he was called Saul who was zealous for the Lord but his heart was not right. He was passionate for his religion but his heart was not connected to what God was really doing. So it's possible to be religiously zealous while being righteously zilch. I write that down. I thought that was good. But what's interesting to me in this brief account of Abijam's short reign is not what we see about Abijam which is pretty much nothing. It's what we see about David. 
In these seven verses, we hear more about David than we do about Abijam. And the verses are supposed to be about Abijam. But here we hear more and more and more about David as the standard of righteousness, of right relationship with the Lord. F.D. Myers said, How long after David's sun had set did the light of his life glimmer over his house? That's very cool. How long after David's sun had set did the light of his life glimmer over his house? In fact, looking again at verse 4, it says, David's, For David's sake the Lord God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. And the lamp of David continued to burn. All the way from David, a thousand years, there wouldn't be anyone in the line of David completely cut off. That line continued. The lamp of Jerusalem would burn all the way until the coming of the son of David, Jesus Christ, who is the picture-perfect model of the relationship, the right relationship with God. David's line continued unbroken all the way to Jesus, but then after Jesus, guess what? No more line of David. It ceases. You can't trace it after Jesus. Obviously, well, Jesus wasn't married. The Da Vinci Code would try to say otherwise. It's a fascinating story. It's a stupid theology. But it stops at Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of the whole thing. 2 Samuel 7.16 God said to David, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Jeremiah 33 verse 14. Later, after this, Jeremiah would say, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah, both houses. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. You Bible students know what the word branch is in the Hebrew. It's Netzer, from which the word Nazarene comes. So the branch of David, the Netzer, Jesus the Nazarene, it's, it's the connection there. I think that's fascinating, interesting prophecy that's embedded in Jeremiah's word here. I will cause a righteous branch or Netzer of David to spring forth. And he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called... Not he. There's another verse, Jeremiah 23, that says this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. But in this verse it says this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Why is that? Well, she is Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem gets to share that name. Here comes the Lord our righteousness, and Jerusalem is the city of the Lord our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. So, even though we're talking about Abijam, it's still David. He's still the standard. Verse 8 going on, And Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, became king in his place. So you got Rehoboam, Abijam, and you come to Asa, the third king in the line of the kings of Judah. And Asa's a good guy.